May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. If you've been with us over the opening three weeks of Lent, you already know that I have had us reading as our first lesson from the book of Psalms. It's generally been a lament psalm reflecting some experience of dislocation or disorientation. Yet now here on this fourth Sunday in Lent, I've selected a psalm that at least at first seems thoroughly rooted in an experience of having been graciously reoriented. As you heard those verses read aloud, you might have even supposed that I was trying to push us past the desert themes of Lent, past the challenges of Holy Week and Good Friday, straight on to Easter. The psalmist writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me out from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure, safe. The psalmist then goes on to write of being given a new song of praise, of the happiness given to those who make the Lord their trust, even of the delight he takes in doing God's will and following God's law, happiness and delight right here in Lent. Lest you think, however, that my Lenten resolve is crumbling, never fear. <laughs> At verse 11, the psalmist does something unexpected. After 10 verses of that, those expressions of thankfulness and of steadfastness, he shifts into lament. Listen. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and faithfulness keep me safe forever, for evils have encompassed me without number. My iniquities have overtaken me until I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails within me. Now, rather than following the more conventional pattern of the Psalms, in which the writer would typically open with some expression of need or pain or guilt, perhaps, and then move to a cry for help and a proclamation of God's long-haul faithfulness, here the writer of Psalm 40 has reversed the order. Here in this psalm, the first move is to mark God's goodness in saving the writer out from the muck. And then only after that, confess, maybe rather sheepishly, that he's again landed himself in some kind of deep trouble. Evils without number have encompassed him. His own sin has so overtaken him, he can no longer see with any clarity. His heart is failing and all of this is happening even though he has been previously saved and made secure, rescued from whatever the disaster was and set in that firm place. He's already in the past experienced the near presence of this very merciful God. And now he says it's happening again. Do you know why though this psalm takes this shape? Because life is like that. Alongside Psalm 40, we also heard the famous story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery, in which Jesus makes those 
extraordinary statements that have almost entered the English language as kind of set phrases. Let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know the story. Jesus is teaching at the temple when a group of the scribes and the Pharisees dragged before him a woman caught in adultery. Teacher, they say, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, put her to death. Now, what do you say? As with other incidents in the gospel, it's all staged as a trap. To see if they can trip Jesus up and show him as being somehow less than faithful to the law and therefore discredit him as a teacher. Notice too that as they drag this woman before him, there's no sign of the man who was part of the adulterous affair. Given the warmth and respect with which Jesus typically treated women, I suspect he didn't miss that detail. Well, the Gospel tells us that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. All the while, they continued to press him for a ruling, for a response. Finally, the Gospel says he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin throw the first stone. And once again, he bends down and writes on the ground with his finger. Now, over the centuries, there's been all kinds of speculation as to what that writing in the dust might have meant. Was he tracing out words there on the ground, words like bear false witness or covet? Sins also prohibited in the Ten Commandments, but into which even the most righteous or self-righteous Pharisee could easily slide? Was he reminding them about something, of something about themselves? We can't possibly know, of course. But what we do know is that as he did that and said that, one by one, they left, beginning with the elders. And then comes that great question, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No no one has remained to condemn her. No one has been able to stand in the face of his challenging words, but the one who has never sinned cast the first stone. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now I imagine that as she left that place, she would have been quite resolved to never, never go and see that man again. I also suspect that she might have been praying words not unlike those with which Psalm 40 begins. You've lifted me up out of the pit. You've saved my sorry life. God's name be praised. Yet, do you suppose that she never again found herself in some place of sin? I mean, we don't know anything about her other than that there was something in her, some need, some vulnerability, want, loneliness, something. Something in her had landed her in bed with that man in the first place. And much as she might swear off ever seeing him again, maybe he was no less wounded than she. 
And maybe they'd again find themselves tempted to seek solace in each other. Or maybe she'd resist that. I mean, she's learned here. But she'd still be isolated in that community. There'd still be a judgment hung over her head as an adulteress. Alienated in an unforgiving community and looking across the road from her home at the woman who seems to have such a strong marriage, such wonderful children, such a steady home and full life. Maybe she'd find herself looking across and coveting that life, perhaps so jealously that she'd find herself loathing that neighbor woman, or worse, loathing herself, which would be the first step back into deeper trouble. While I was away on vacation last month, Helen Kennedy, who's here tonight, preached a sermon on a text from the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, which I've since heard identified as her Johnny Depp sermon. <laughs> as Helen began to unpack that admittedly very challenging Gospel text, she admitted that she had, quote, lusted after Johnny Depp for many years. <laughs> And then she added that she had experienced murderous thoughts about a whole host of people, some of whom are in this room right now. Well, you can hear it on the podcast, just like tonight. It's actually subtitled the Johnny Depp sermon, Helen. Just like tonight, though, everyone laughs at those confessions, right? We laugh at the kind of the absurdity of the confession, but we also laugh because maybe those confessions ring with a, a kind of a level of familiarity for everyone present. Maybe not about Johnny Depp, just speaking personally, but, <laughs> but you know what she was getting at. That sort of self-teasing and then kind of slyly inviting people to look at so what goes on in our own minds and hearts and emotions? Life's like that too. Because our emotions and our motivations can be so complex, maybe laughable sometimes, but still so complex. And our points of weakness and vulnerability so very, very real. It'd be hard pressed for me to find a clergy colleague who had not spent time sitting with someone as they agonized over some sexual infidelity, an adultery, an affair, trying to make sense of how they had got so badly off track in the first place. So when that woman Jesus had rescued from the crowd again found herself in some place of brokenness, some place of sin, maybe it wasn't an infidelity, but maybe it was that loathing or self-loathing, found herself faltering as surely as we all do. I wonder, did she just lock herself up in some place of deep shame, believing that though grace had been offered her that day, it was no longer available? Jesus had told her he wouldn't condemn her, not then, not then, not there, and that she was to go and sin no more, and she had. Still, if that woman Jesus rescued, or if any of us here take seriously what this writer of Psalm 40 prays, 
we have to know that there is yet another horizon beyond that second or third or fourth fall. Knowing what it is to be rescued from the muck and the mire and then to fall back into trouble again, trouble of his own creation quite clearly if you read the text, the psalmist can still write, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. The Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. And he does give God a little bit of a push with that final line, doesn't he? Do not delay, O Lord. Or as Eugene Peterson renders it in his translation, you can do it, Lord. You've got what it takes. But God, don't put it off. Even the push, the firm elbow to the divine ribs, is itself an act of faith in the mercy of God. The decisions we make, the decisions that woman went on to make after she was raised up out of the dust that day, they matter. I mean, Jesus strongly challenges people to live with integrity. And yet, 70 times 7 is how he audaciously numbered things when Peter asked him about forgiveness. And we do well to remember that whenever we confess the truth about the shape of our own lives, our own motivations, our own stumbling ways. And each time we're tempted to look in judgment at the lives of others around us. For in truth, the Lord does take thought for each and every one of us, even as we stumble the second or seventh or seventieth time. We will be lifted up out of the mire, set firmly on a rock. The Lord be exalted. Amen.